before we jump into our passage, kids, I'm going to give you a heads up, uh, let you know what we're going to be talking about with this sermon. It's going to be about what the scripture is going to be about. So I want to tell you a true story. True story, okay? True story, kids. Uh, I heard it's a true story. A hundred years ago in Arkansas, this is a hundred years ago in Arkansas, there are two boys, okay? Two young boys. One's named James. The other one is Arlie. Hey, James comes from a very wealthy family. James's family uh, owns the general store, the only store in town where you get groceries, clothes, kind of your one-stop shop. James's family owns <clears throat> the general store, and they've got the largest house in town. <clears throat> Arlie, other boy, Arlie, he lived in the woods. His family's super poor. <clears throat> they didn't have much. Arlie didn't even have shoes. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity. He lives really in a cabin out in the woods. Okay, but they go to school together. James and Arlie know each other. One day around Christmas time, towards the end of you know school, uh, James comes to school with an orange. Arlie has never seen an orange, and when James started to peel the orange, that you know y'all know that orange smell just started to fill the room. And, and Arlie's mouth just started to water. And James looks at Arlie, who's drooling, and he says, do you want some? And Arlie says, yes, please. And James gives him the peel. And Arlie takes the peel, and he smells it, and he bites into it, and he starts to just devour it because it's the best thing he's ever tasted. Okay, have you, kids, have y'all ever eaten an orange peel? D those that have tried it, is it good? No, it's not good. Okay, okay, now, we feel so bad for Arlie, right? Like, that stinks. We feel bad for Arlie, but Arlie didn't know any better. Arlie had never seen an orange. He didn't know any better. Okay, we feel bad for him, but we kids, we here, we can make the same mistake as Arlie if we don't know any better. As in, here's the mistake you can make. The early mistake. You do not want to live your life as if your life was about you. That's not how you, like, when you make kids, when you make your life about you and about making yourself happy, that is like eating orange peels and saying, mm, God, this is just the best. It's not. Living for yourself is eating orange peels. There's something so much better. Okay, how about this? What do you think is the orange slice of life? Kids, throw anything out there that comes to mind. <laughs> nailed it. Who was it? Was that Colby? Colby nailed it. It's Jesus. Y'all, these are not, y'all, you can always say Jesus. Jesus is always the best answer to any question. If he's not the answer, it's probably not a very good question. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus is the orange slice. Like living, like getting Jesus in life, that is eating the orange. The whole, he's not just the orange slice, he's the whole orange. And, and if you don't like oranges, just follow me here. It's, it's a really good picture, okay? Just pretend you like oranges. What is so great about Jesus, kids? Again, throw anything out. What's anything good about Jesus? What's good about Jesus? Keep going. He died for us. He loves you. He loves us. What else? 
He saved us. How long has he been around? Forever, because he's not only Jesus, fully man, he's also God, son of God, who's been around forever, who became a man many, many Christmases ago. What else is good about Jesus? He's the creator. Think about this. He's the creator. He made you and he saved you and he loves you and he loves you so much. He came and lived for you. He died for you. He was raised from the dead for you all to save you. And now what he's going to do is he's going to take you to heaven forever and ever and ever, which is paradise, the greatest thing you can ever imagine. And he will be with you forever and ever and ever. Like you can see, touch, talk to him, hear him, hug him. Like Jesus is the best. Y'all, there is nothing better than Jesus, even right now in this life. That's what we want to see today. Is that having Jesus... That's the orange slice of life. That's the, that's the orange. There's nothing better than Jesus. This one, your God who loves you and has saved you. His love is better than anything. There's this, there's this other Christmas story, kids. We're going to end with this. There's this other Christmas story in the Bible. It's at the end of Luke chapter 1. That's a gospel. It's about a priest named Zechariah who did not— he's a priest, and he really didn't believe in God. And so he just lived for himself. And then an angel comes to visit him and tells him really good news, and he doesn't believe the angel. And then about nine months later, something happens, and God opens up this priest's heart to believe in Jesus. And then Zechariah, what we're going to see is that Zechariah doesn't want his life to be about his life anymore. Now Zechariah wants his life to be about his Savior's life. For Advent this year, everyone, for Advent, uh, and kids, keep listening because we come back to Arlie. We're not done with Arlie, okay? For Advent this year, I want to consider some of those other Christmas stories that don't get all the, you know, maybe maybe you've heard tons about them. I, I, I haven't. So I wanted to jump into some of these stories I've not heard much about, but are super awesome and super Christmassy. And one is about this priest named Zachariah coming to faith and then going off on a rant about his Savior. Uh, we're going to start in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Just for those who, I meant to include a little more background, but the passage would have been really long. This priest was also visited by an angel, told that he and his barren wife were going to have a child, and he didn't believe it. Nine months later, they have a child. And everyone's arguing about what they're going to name him. This is a miracle baby. This is awesome. Zachariah has not been able to speak for nine months. And he speaks, and this is what he says. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And his father, this is John, who is John the Baptist, baby, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, so this is the end of Luke chapter 1, but Luke starts his gospel. He starts his gospel with this older married couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Luke tells, tells us that they have this deep pain in their lives. They are barren and they have no kids. And Luke tells us that Zachariah is a priest who serves in the temple in Jerusalem. In one year, Zachariah is actually selected to go into the most inner part of the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies. And something happens in the temple. Something happens in the Holy of Holies that Zechariah was not expecting to happen. He encounters God. An angel from God appears to him and tells him, tells Zechariah, your barren wife Elizabeth is going to have a son and you're going to name him John and he's going to prepare for the way for the Lord who's coming. And then Luke tells us that Zechariah does not believe this angel because Zechariah actually doesn't really believe in the God that he preaches. And so the angel tells him, okay, fine. You don't believe the words that I've spoken to you, then you're not going to be able to speak. You are struck dumb. Silence. Nine months of silence. And nine months later, their miracle son, Zachariah and Elizabeth's miracle son is born and everyone in the family is there excitedly arguing what his name is going to be. And mute Zachariah writes his name down on a tablet and names him, what the angel said to name him, his name is John. Immediately his mouth opens up and he starts gushing. Okay, this new old dad who's longed for a child all his life, who has committed his life, who is slaved as a priest of God, wanting nothing more than a child of his own, never being able to have one, and so resenting God to the point of rejecting him, then being met by God and promised a miracle baby here, Zechariah, he looks at his newborn baby boy, John, and opening up his heart, he starts gushing about not John. Okay. When the teacher saw Arlie, hey kids, come back to Arlie. When the teacher saw Arlie take that orange peel from James and eat it with all that wonder and all that gratitude, it broke her heart so she went to the store and bought Arlie a Christmas present. And she took it out to the cabin in the woods. For Christmas, she gave Arlie a basket of oranges. And Arlie took one of the oranges and he peeled it and he started eating the peel. 
And she, and she grabbed the orange, she stopped him, she tore off the peel and gave him the actual inner part, the orange, and said, this is the orange you eat. And he bit into it. And the orange flavor ran through him. And the juice filled his mouth. And he smiled, and he laughed, and then he started to cry. And he said, I didn't know God could make something taste that good. The gospel has so filled up Zechariah that he can't but sing what has become his greatest desire, not his newborn miracle son, but the son of God, his savior, who he previously never could have imagined was so good. The first words of Zechariah's prophecy, he's blessing the God of Israel. The God of Israel he didn't used to believe in because he believes God is not only real, but has really sent his savior for his people. And he describes this savior as a horn. Okay, now, the last time that someone prophesied about horns, horns in the Bible was around 500 years earlier by another Zechariah. Old Testament, Zechariah, prophet. So here, got here, New Testament, Zechariah's namesake, like who he's named after is, is, at least it goes back to, you know, his grandfather. It goes back to the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, who lived at a time after Babylon, a little history, Babylon has destroyed Jerusalem. They have destroyed the temple. They have taken Judah, Israel, what's left. They have taken them into captivity exile. 70 years later, Persia comes along, and Persia beats up Babylon, and they free the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. You can go home. You can go back if you want. So a lot of Israelites go back to uh, Jerusalem. Old Testament, Old Testament Zechariah, along with only the poorest people, they're back in Jerusalem with the temple, and the temple is being rebuilt now. And the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers, which is a super fitting name for this prophet because Zechariah's message, Old Testament Zechariah's message is, listen, God will remember and he will deliver on his promises to his people of a glorious kingdom with a king. And we're gonna be his people and we're gonna get a land. Like we're the people where our, the sin inside of us and outside of us, it's defeated. God's, uh, God will dwell with his people as their king in a realm of heavenly paradise. But... Old Testament, Zechariah says, but not yet. Even, you know, even with their new freedom and they're rebuilding the temple, Zechariah, Old Testament, Zechariah is saying there are still hard times ahead for God's people. You'll need to know this. In Old Testament, Zechariah, here's his prophecy about the horns. He starts, he starts in Zechariah 1. This really kicks off his prophecies. He says this in Zechariah 1. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Okay, so Old Testament Zechariah's horns, they're bad horns. These are not good horns. These are bad horns. These are horns that scatter. And that same verb is used elsewhere. These are horns that terrify. These are horns that scare other animals. So with these horns, you are supposed to picture an attacking bull with deadly horns. 
And that attacking bull with horns is a picture here. It's a picture elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's a picture even in the New Testament. These horns represent political powers against God's people. And God's people, this is a really full picture because God's people are also pictured as animals. What, are, what animal is God's, God's people pictured as? Old Testament, New Testament. Sheep. Sheep. This is a really fitting picture. The sheep are in trouble from these charging animals that have horns terrifying us. The attacking horns are symbolic of powers trying to keep God's people down, not allowing God to fulfill his promises to them through persecution, blasphemy, mocking. Okay, so these horns, these horns in Old Testament Zechariah, bad horns that picture attacking bulls, which picture persecuting nations. Okay, you can see those horns literally. Like, where do you see those, those horns literally? You can actually see them literally at pagan altars. The four corners of pagan altars, where they do their own sacrifices, at each corner there's a horn coming out. And what all that means is the world, the world powers are in rebellion against God because they hate God and because they want to be their own God and they want to live in God's world on their own terms. And in being their own God, the world wants the worship that is due to God. And since, ever since, Old Testament, Old Testament Zechariah's horn prophecy, it seems like the horns of the nations are winning. As you look, go back to New Testament Zechariah, look at the Israel that New Testament Zechariah is living in, in the first century. It's occupied territory. Jerusalem is a tiny, insignificant city, and it is controlled by a foreign nation. It is controlled by a Roman Caesar who claims to be God himself. And Zechariah is a Jewish priest who serves in the temple of God, who, and this God is supposed to be the God of the nations. This God is supposed to be the God of creation. And Israel has not heard from their God in 400 years. And God's temple is now a rebuilt sham of what it was. All the furniture is gone. The Ark of the Covenant, it is gone. The Holy of Holies, it is empty, literally. You used to not be able to go into the Holy of Holies, but once a year, and only the high priest could go in there. Otherwise, you would be struck down. You would be consumed by God's holiness. But God's presence, it's not there anymore. That, not in that temple, not in the Holy of Holies, it's empty. You could walk, you could walk right into it and nothing would happen to you. And we know that because foreign generals used to do it. When you first meet New Testament Zechariah here in Luke, their, infer their infertility, it is a deep physical wound. And it says that Zechariah is a righteous man who follows all the commands of God. But then it hits you when he meets the angel that his spiritual wound is much deeper than his physical wound. That his, his going through the motions of his faith and his crisis of faith, it's exposed there when he meets the angel. 
that deep down, Zechariah thinks God and his promises are like that temple. They're sham. They're empty. In 1967, there was a young uh, 17-year-old teenager named Johnny Erickson, and she was swimming in the Chesapeake Bay, and she dove off a raft uh, that she was standing on into the water, and the water was dark. She couldn't see what was below, and as she dove in below the water, her head hit a rock, and her neck snapped, and she lost all sensation. She was rushed to the hospital, and the last thing she remembers is the vague sound of a drill near her head. And she woke up to find herself paralyzed from the neck down. Surgeries, occupational therapy, uh, now a quadriplegic bound to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And through it all, through all of that, the physical trauma, she says, was not as bad as the spiritual. And through it all, she became a Christian and a writer uh, teaching about Jesus. And then she gets breast cancer. And I only learned this last week from my friend Jared Huffman. He's a pastor in Chattanooga uh, that she writes about this and says, I, I remember as my husband was driving me home in our van from chemotherapy one day, we would talk about how suffering is little splashovers of hell. And we pull into the driveway and her, her husband, this is now Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, her husband says, well, what do you think then splashovers of heaven are? Do you think there are those breezy and bright times where everything is going your way and you have your health? They both say, no way. That's not what a splashover of heaven is. Splashover of heaven is having Jesus in your splashover of hell. And Johnny says, to find Jesus in your hell is ecstasy beyond compare, and I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in the world. So it is not that splashovers of hell, uh, that, that sorry, it's not that suffering is splashovers of hell in that fun times are splashovers of heaven. It's that this life is characterized by suffering. It just is. And having Jesus in the midst of this hard life, that's the splashover of heaven. And each and every one of you here is in some level of deep suffering. And distraction and pleasure and entertainment and ease are not going to sustain you. Not in that suffering, and it's not going to get you out of it. it let's just be, uh, if you can get out of your suffering, that is great. And you should try to get out of what your suffering is. Like that is, that is fine. Uh, but the splashover of heaven is not getting out of your suffering, whatever it might be. It's finding Jesus in it, whether or not you get out of it. And it's because on this side of heaven, we will never fully or finally get away from our suffering. Zechariah, here in the New Testament, New Testament Zechariah finds Jesus in his hell. That as much as he wanted a child, as much as he loves his newborn baby boy, the gospel promises of God, that's the orange slice he's tasting for the first time, and he's overwhelmed by it, never imagining God could be so good. 
the horns of Old Testament Zechariah, the horns that Old Testament Zechariah talked about aimed at God's people, those horns are directed at God himself. As in mocking God, laughing at God, that he cannot deliver on his promises to his people. The nations, the world controls God's people. The world decides good or bad for God's people. The world decides whether God's people will be allowed to live or to die. New Testament Zechariah, living in the darkness of a foreign occupation and religious persecution, used to believe that. He didn't believe it anymore. And it makes sense that New Testament Zechariah has Old Testament Zechariah on his mind. That makes sense. But why does Luke? Because you want to ask, take another step back. Like, the guy who writes this gospel, like, why does Luke, the gospel writer, have this on his mind? Luke is a Gentile. He's not a priest. He's not even Jewish. He's a Gentile. What does Luke care about a formerly infertile, unbelieving Jewish priest ranting about a horn of salvation that's going to defeat the Gentile nations? He's a Gentile. That's going to defeat the Gentile nations, oppressing God's people from the house of David. What does Luke care? He's a Gentile. He cares because he's a Gentile. Old Testament King David I know we're going back to the Old Testament. Just the Old, Old Testament King David, he was the one king in Israel's history who had a universal interest in all peoples, all nations, including the Gentiles. David's great-grandmother was Ruth, a Moabite Gentile. Uh, and Oppo, opposite the wicked, xenophobic King Saul before him who hated outsiders, David is a missionary king who shared the gospel with other nations. David converted tons of Philistines. When he came back from living among them, he used to live with them when he was run out of Israel. He went and he lived with the Philistines. And when he came back, he brought 600 of them back with him because they were his closest friends and closest advisors, and they believed what he believed. He surrounded himself with foreigners, converted Hittites, Archites, Carathites, Pelathites. I'm not making those names up. Uh, and there are others. And Luke, the gospel writer, Luke bases the outline of his gospel on the Old Testament books that are about David, which are First and Second Samuel, because he gets that Jesus is a second and final David. First and Second Samuel. Let me just think about this. First and Second Samuel, these books about David, they begin with a story about a priestly family struggling with infertility, who then give birth to a miracle baby. Not David, Samuel. And Samuel is a prophet who's going to prepare the way for King David. And just like First, Sam, First and Second Samuel is not about Samuel, it's about David, Luke is sending off alarm bells here to say that his gospel is not about Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's not about John the Baptist, it's about this second David, Jesus, who the, all these others point to. And Luke loves David because David is the king who loves Gentiles. And Luke is a Gentile. And the true David is here. It's Jesus. This horn of salvation. And Jesus defeating 
the Gentile peoples right now, it looks like beating them with the gospel, making enemies his family. Let me say this. I know that you have got enemies. Say that again. I know that you have got enemies. That is not an unchristian thing to say. That is a very Christian thing to say. But you're supposed to love your enemies. Do you believe this gospel of eternal salvation is for your enemies? Your political enemies? Your enemies across the pond? Your enemies at your work? Your enemies around town? Do you believe this gospel is for your enemies that are in your family? What about your greatest enemy, which is you? Do you believe that you were once the enemy of Jesus, but not anymore? When Jesus grows up, the world powers try to finally and fully shut God up and stop him from delivering his promises by crucifying his son. The world thinks that killing Jesus is its victory. And loved ones, the world wants you to believe that the world outlives Jesus, that the world does not need Jesus, that this world will go on and on and on forever, and that what the world has, has to offer you is the answer to your every problem. And because of that, you owe your allegiance to the world. But the great irony is that Jesus' death, it's his victory because he dies for his enemies, taking their sins on himself, dies for his enemies, taking their punishment on himself. He dies for his enemies, taking their ultimate defeat on himself. And he forgives his enemies. And he makes them his. He makes them his family. He makes them his friends. These other horns of worldly power, they're just counterfeits of true power, who is Jesus, the power of God unto salvation. So the great, the great irony here is that in the incarnation of little baby Jesus, Jesus is the horn coming for the other horns. And in his first advent, he defeats the horns spiritually. He defeats the horns of evil spiritually. But he is coming again. And in his second coming, every enemy is put down physically and fully. Our sin is completely put down. The world, the false church, the devil, and God's people are given their complete salvation. And we, we right now, right now, today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, until Jesus comes back right now, we cannot be like former New Testament Zechariah who said he, that he believed this stuff and then be lulled, be distracted, be beaten down into defeat, uh, into doubt, into forgetfulness, into unbelief, or into rejection of God's promises. We cannot allow ourselves to be stolen away from God's promises that his kingdom comes. 
Zechariah ends with this. He ends with, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. You know what that sunrise thing is? You know the sunrise is when the sun rises in the morning. Okay, okay. Get, but we're talking about the same sun that's 93 million miles away. Okay, and if you stare at it, it will blind you. If, if you stand out in it for too long, my kids know this, I talk about this all the time. If you stand out in that sun that's 93 million miles away for too long, it will literally burn your skin off. You, it, when, it, when it first comes up though, when that sun first comes up though, you can look directly at it and you can stand in all of its glory. And our English language providentially really does some double duty here. Uh, that is like the Son of God saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because in the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you look directly at God, you will die, you will be consumed. But one who is equal in power and glory of the same substance as the Father, you can look right at him. The Son, the Son of, <laughs> the son of God, that Son, S-O-N, he is the sunrise. This is not, and this is not my sunrise story. This is, this is Brian Habig's stuff, but I was reminded of this uh, when we were out of town recently with friends and on our last day of vacay, our friend got up early in the morning to go look at the sunrise and she told us about it. And we're like, what are you, like, what? Why? You crazy? Last morning to sleep in? What's wrong with you? And then you think about it and you're like, what is wrong with us? I mean, we're at the we're at a beautiful beach. That sunrise is unlike any other sunrise. It doesn't look like the sun is 93 miles away. Uh, it looks like million miles. I say 93 million miles away. It looks like it's right there and you can touch it. And why didn't we get up? Y'all, why don't we do this all the time? The sunrise is incredible and it's happening every day. But the way that we live our lives, there is no sunrise. And if there is one, what are you crazy? Like, who cares? This is how we live. Like, what do you care about the sunrise? Well, the sunrise, it dispels the darkness. And Jesus is the sunrise. And the darkness of our suffering and our sin and all evil, all that darkness it is doomed. The sun will rise on our kingdom. It is coming. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you and we praise you that we actually cannot be stolen out of your grasp, out of your love, out of your salvation. Help us to hold on to that awesome reality today and tomorrow and the next day as we get up, as we go out, as we try to love you, as we try to love each other, as we try to love the stranger, Lord, as we try to love our enemy. Father, help us to hold on to this gospel of grace. Help us to look to Jesus, the sweetest thing that we could possibly ever want. Help us to look to our Lord, to know your love, 
in order that we might love you more today and the next day and the next day. We pray that the cross would be bigger today than it was yesterday, that it will be bigger tomorrow than it is today. We pray that we would leave here differently knowing your love and knowing your grace, knowing your salvation that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.